0: where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. Brought to you by Silicon Valley Bank, Ideas Bank here. I'm Dan Primack. On today's show, the opioids epidemic takes a bite out of business and the internet is getting faster, but only for some. First though, a tale of two American economies. So we hear lots of talk out of Washington, DC about how strong the economy is right now, particularly in terms of new jobs and low unemployment. But one very stubborn statistic has been new business creation, which has been essentially flat for a decade, uh, showing a tiny increase at the beginning of 2018, but then dipping back down to its sluggish norm. At the same time, however, venture capitalists have been plugging record amounts of money into startups, unfazed by this broader trend. One distinction, of course, is that venture capitalists typically invest only in companies with what they refer to as high growth potential. So something like a tech company, like an Uber, as opposed to a local plumbing shop. And obviously there are all sorts of startups that are better served by a bank loan or maybe a loan from a friend than by a venture capitalist. But that said, venture capital lately has really broadened in the sectors it's willing to touch from tech to healthcare to food delivery to consumer products. And there is an argument that more founders could take advantage of it if A, VCs were more present in more geographic markets, and B, if startup founders better understood venture capital, including what to watch out for. In short, this new job creation issue could in part be solved by an expansion of venture capital but only if both founders and VCs start talking to each other more. That's the information gap my guest this morning, Scott Cooper is seeking to fill with his new book, The Secrets of Sand Hill Road. We'll dig in 15 seconds from now,
1: but first this. Have a great idea for a startup? Silicon Valley Bank wants to help you make it a reality. With more than 35 years of experience, they understand the challenges of the startup journey and have created banking and financial solutions to help founders every step of the way. Silicon Valley Bank, ideas, bank here. Visit svb.com forward slash next to learn more. We're joined now by Scott Cooper, managing
0: partner of venture capital firm Andreessen Horwitz and the author of the new book, Secrets of Sand Hill Road. So, Scott, from politicians particularly, but even when we see some of the data, we hear a lot about a decline in America in the number of small businesses. But every year it seems that I cover venture capital, it seems the number of VC-backed startups is only on the rise. Are there basically two American startup economies and you guys on Sand Hill Road are really only dealing with one of them?
1: I think you're right on the data, but you know, if you're ever depressed, come spend a day out here or certainly you know, go down the street in Boston or New York. And I think it's really hard to be depressed about what the future of America is. But I think you're right. There's no question that we've always known that B.C. as a percentage of total startup funding is actually a pretty small number and most stuff gets funded by banks or personal loans and things of that sort. Our hope though is, and you know, I don't know if the book will accomplish this on its own, but my hope is that we can do a better job of geographic distribution in the U.S. and not just have 75% of the venture dollars in New York, Boston, California, but actually get better distribution, which I think would also help, you know, kind of the the benefits of technology hopefully be more broadly dispersed uh, other than just on the coast.
0: I've been hearing that for, you know, certainly over a decade. I know we're well past, you know, there was the period of time where if you were a firm, you know, say on Sand Hill Road, there were certain firms said, if I have to drive more than 20 minutes to meet a founder, I'm not doing the deal. But we've been hearing for a while, you know, we need to be in the Midwest, we need to be in the Southeast, et cetera. Why do you think we aren't really there yet? There are some exceptions, particularly like Salt Lake City. But generally speaking, as you say, there isn't a great distribution of those dollars geographically.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. But, you know, you have, Dan, you know, you've seen places like Seattle and obviously L.A., you know, in the last decade probably has grown probably, you know, faster than anybody expected. I think the challenge is you've got to have seed capital kind of solidify a local market. I think it's very hard to assume that you're going to get people to fly in to do you know, a one or $2 million seed deal. Once you get past that, most money will get on planes and go do stuff, but I think you've got to bootstrap it at the local level with greater seed capital. And we are at least starting to see that. We're starting to see kind of more funds proliferating outside of the three coasts, but um, sorry, the two coasts. But I think that's really the issue. you got to have that early capital. And then, you know, that is effectively what creates the bootstrap opportunity for the network effect that ultimately, hopefully, you know, kind of expands out into broader stage.
0: You know, a lot of those cities kind of call them the non-coastal cities from a government perspective have sometimes tried to become that seed funding right through either through grant programs or, or through equity programs, you know, municipally funded equity programs. From your perspective, is that something you believe is a viable model or does that not work? work so well?
1: Personally, I'm not a huge fan of it. I just think it it distorts kind of the free market incentives in a lot of cases. I think the best thing that the kind of local folks can do is figure out what their comparative advantage is. And then quite frankly, partner closely with universities to figure out how do you get a critical mass of engineers around it? So I'll give you an example. I lived in Raleigh, Durham for a couple of years. And, you know, I think they did a good job, particularly around the life sciences side of partnering with Duke and UNC and NC State and saying, hey, look, Let's make sure that we make it easy to commercialize and spin out technologies that could have relevant, you know, commercial uh, opportunity. And then, you know, kind of bottoms up, build that comparative advantage. Then you get critical mass of engineers, you get a critical mass of executives, and you can kind of build concentric circles out from there. But I think you have to kind of start not boiling the ocean, but figuring out what is the region going to be known for, and then uh, work out that way.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems the goal of the book is to kind of help solve this kind of information asymmetry between founders, most of whom usually have not founded a company before, and then you guys, the the venture capitalists on Sand Hill Road who have founded hundreds or thousands of companies and certainly seen thousands more. So I guess let me ask it this way. Isn't this kind of the fox explaining where the hens should position themselves in the hen house?
1: (laughs) Uh, that's one way to interpret it. Um, I think the, uh, my, my intention certainly was not that. My intention was actually the opposite, which is to truly actually demystify the business. You know, you and I have talked about this, Dan, over time. Uh, but I think there is this information asymmetry. And it comes from the fact that, yeah, like great entrepreneurs might do this five or six or seven times in their whole career. And, you know, a VC, uh, you know, in the course of a year is probably going to do it hundreds of times. And there's just no reason in my mind to have that information asymmetry. Look, a lot of things have changed over the last 10 years to help improve, I think the relative positioning of the entrepreneurs relative to the VCs. But I still think the whole business here is a black box that's just needlessly so. And it it creates... Quite frankly, distrust and mistrust, I think, between the parties in a way that isn't good for anybody in the ecosystem.
0: That is the thing, right? That you know, you have this, you know, obviously, particularly in Silicon Valley, but, but in technology and biotech, broadly speaking, most companies that you or I have heard of, or even you know, the thousands more that we haven't or that normal folks haven't heard of, do take venture capital. But there does seem to be kind of this underlying animus towards it. Like it, it's it's the yeah. thing we do because we have to, kind of like taking out a mortgage, right? Nobody's thrilled to take out a mortgage, but you want to buy the house, so you do it. Why do Think that is because venture capitalists, as you well know, talk about themselves as you know being friends to founders, uh, having aligned interests, et cetera.
1: I think the reason for that is kind of for most of the history of venture capital, and if you go back to the U.S., you know, call it early 1970s is where a lot of the very successful and storied firms came from. I think for most of that time period, the industry was characterized by capital was scarce. The VCs had it, and therefore, if you look kind of at the relative you know balance of power between entrepreneurs and VCs, the the VCs, quite frankly, you know we're higher up on the, on the power curve. And I think the big reversal that's happened over the last 15 years is there's better education, there's way more capital, and therefore you actually have reversed the bid, which is now you've got entrepreneurs who have their choices of how they pick venture capital firms as opposed to the alternative. And so I think we're kind of in this middle transition phase where there's potentially some kind of, you know, either bad behavior or bad taste that was left in the mouth of prior entrepreneurs as a result of kind of that power imbalance that we're in the process, you know, I think hopefully of, writing in a way that actually will put the two players in the ecosystem on a much more level playing field.
0: You know, venture capital, obviously, w- when a VC firm decides to invest in a company, to a certain extent, it is trying to help pick a winner, right? You know, it is, it's funding this yep. company and not com- company A and not company B. That said, we seem to be in this new environment. You guys obviously are a very large firm, you know, with multi-billion dollar fund, but now you have things like SoftBank raising over $100 billion for the second time. Are we at the point where VC firms aren't just picking the firms they think will win and funding them as opposed to using dollars specifically to pick winners? In other words, it's now capital in many of these cases that is the differentiator as opposed to ideas or execution.
1: Yeah, I I don't think we're there. I actually think, you know, there was a period, probably four years ago, when SoftBank first came out, where they were literally a class of one, and so I think there was that ability to, in many respects, kingmake and say, "Hey, look, there's nobody else who can write a $300, $500 million check, and so if we, you know, if we pick you, that becomes a little bit of a self-fulfilling principle." I think the most interesting thing to me over the last four years is that, you know, there's not 50 players in that space now, but there's probably a good 10 to 15 players who could write checks of that scale, and some of those are buyout firms, some of those are sovereign wealth funds. And so I think actually the king making ability probably is less so than it was, you know, several years ago, just given kind of the entrant of new entrants of new players in the space. And um, and so therefore, I, I think that dynamic is probably not that uh, active anymore. And there's probably always somebody who's got a lower cost of capital and access to more money out there. So I think it's probably a strategy that was pretty short lived to me. It doesn't need to be playing out in any uh, great scale right now. The
0: book is Secrets of Sand Hill Road, which you can get on Amazon in bookstores. Or if you go to Andreessen Horwitz's offices, there are just giant stacks of them. Thank you, Scott. <laughs>
1: Nice
0: dance my final two right after
1: this with Silicon Valley Bank you'll get a banking and financial services partner committed to seeing you through the ups the downs and the I'm way in over my head moments there are also scalable solutions that fit each important stage of the startup journey visit svb.com forward slash next to learn more
0: Now it's time for my final two, and first up is British drug giant Malincrot, which this morning said it will suspend plans to spin out its generic pharma's business into a new company, something it first announced late last year. Now, the issue here is lawsuits in the United States over how Malincrot marketed and distributed opioids, which make up a big part of that generics business it wants to spin off. Bloomberg cites one analyst estimate that generic drug makers overall could be responsible for 30% of all opioid related liabilities, which for Malincrot could add up to $6.4 billion in penalties. The bottom line, today's news reflects how those who allegedly contributed to a massive public health crisis are now facing a massive public markets crisis. And finally, all the talk you hear right now about 5G is really about how the internet just keeps getting better and faster for consumers. The only trouble, as Axios reports today, is that the access is usually limited to those in urban and suburban areas, leaving large swaths of the country with either slow service or no service. It is, in short, the new digital divide, and there is significant overlap between these so-called broadband deserts and the parts of America that have been left behind economically over the past 10 years. Now, there is some new FCC movement on at least getting better data to understand the problem, but for now, those benefiting from broadband technology advances are mostly those who already had plenty of options. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producer, Tim Shovers, have a great national root beer float day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another ProRata podcast.